So being that we're in between uh, kind of weeks, we're going to be looking at um, we're going to be looking at a psalm, my favorite book of the Bible, favorite type of um, passage. And psalm is one of those words that we don't use anymore, right? Like you don't hear anyone going around saying like, oh, I'm going to sing a psalm, right? Like it's kind of a churchy word. Um, but a psalm is literally a it's, a, it's like a hymn or a sacred song. And when we say it, we often are mostly referring to the book of psalms, right? Which is if you were to take your Bible and you were to open your Bible up just kind of pretty much to the middle randomly, you usually open up close to the psalms. It's right there and close to the middle. And the book of psalms, is it, when we look at it, it's like we're reading into the hymnal of the Bible, we're digging in and we're looking at what is these, we're looking at these prayers, at these poems, at these songs that have been sung and been read for thousands and thousands of years. They are songs that people have opened up and they've said and, and, and have read and found that they resonate with their heart with their life experience. For me, when we're reading a psalm, I'm finding that my own heart, my own condition, my own life circumstances are being reflected back to me. And that encourages me on one level because I know that somebody else has also been where I have been. Someone else has read these same words and had them speak to them. Someone else has found that they've been an encouragement to them, that someone else has just a difficult time in life just as much as me. And that I'm, that my experience, if it's being reflected in the psalm, it's being reflected, it, it has a place in scripture. If you can find it in the psalms, which I think you can, you can find pretty much everything in the psalms, then there's space for it. The Psalms are filled with not just songs of praise, but Psalms of thanksgiving and songs of lament, of deep crying and heartache. And that wide spectrum of human experience is included in the Bible for a reason. If it's included in the Bible, it should be included in church and how we do life together. And so... We're going to be looking at Psalm 34 today. And Psalm 34 is a, is a really unique psalm for a couple reasons. It's a rather dense psalm. It covers a lot of ground. Um, and there's something really kind of, there's something unique about it. I'm going to kind of go Bible nerd for a second, if you guys are all okay with that. Um, <clears throat> so... The Bible was written in, primarily was written in two different languages, right? was written in ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek. Uh, the Old Testament was written in ancient Hebrew, and that's where we're at today. Um, and so this, um, so all that to say, this is written in ancient languages. That's why we have different, what are sometimes called versions, or I prefer to say translations of the Bible, Right? We have different translations of the Bible, not because um, they're different like editions of the Bible. It's not like George Lucas's Star Wars where he keeps like doing a new special edition and adding aliens and things to it. Um, it's, it's more like these are different attempts to try and faithfully translate 
ancient languages that we don't speak anymore. Right? It's an attempt to try and translate them and convey the meaning of the original text through different English modern language. Um, and so, but if we could, if we could read ancient Hebrew and we were looking at this psalm, we would see that this psalm is an, an acrostic psalm. And that means it's a psalm that where each line starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So um, it would be going like A, B, C, D, and so forth. And that kind of indicates that this psalm was a psalm that was meant to be memorized. A psalm that was meant to be readily known. That somebody maybe probably memorized and knew and would stand up in front of a group of people and recite and tell, and people would join in with this psalm. And so today, I want us to read this psalm, and I want us to be looking at this and knowing that this is a psalm that was meant to teach us something, meant to show us something. And so as we look at this, I'll read through the entire psalm. I encourage you to be looking for where does your heart resonate? Where do you find your own story reflected in the words of this psalm? And perhaps how is this, as we read this together this morning, as we look at this passage, we're not just us. There's thousands of years of of believers, of people who've gone before us who have read this psalm, who've had similar experiences to us, who are not all that different from who we are today in our busyness, in our own worries, and our hecticness, and the anxiety that we carry with ourselves. And that perhaps this psalm was read in front of a group of people who were not all that different from us. So, if you would, join with me in Psalm 34, either in your Bible, or it will also be up here on the screen. Psalm 34 reads, Of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you, his holy people. For, who, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name 
from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all of his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants, and no one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. So that's a pretty intense and dense sermon, or psalm. And it's, it's also a little bit audacious, because if you look at the beginning of that passage, right, it starts off with Psalmist David, and he says, like, I'm going to praise the Lord, I'm going to glorify the Lord, and then he turns outwards, and he's not talking about himself anymore, and he's turning out to the audience, to those that are listening, and he says, let the afflicted join with me and sing and praise the Lord. Well, that's a, that's a pretty bold thing to say, right? To turn to people and say, like, I know that there are people out there who would say that they are afflicted. If you're afflicted, you should also join with me in this psalm. And that's, that's a pretty, like human statement, right? Because like that psalm or that congregation he's talking to, right? He's saying, I know that there are people out there who are not, who who are going through a difficult time, who have things on their minds that are, are weighing heavy on them. And I know that that's true this morning. Right? I know that not everyone in here this morning has a perfectly, like, Instagram filtered life does not match reality. Right? We, we all know that's reality. We all know that we have things going on that we wish weren't going on in our lives. Troubles, worries, anxieties that we wish weren't there. But they are there. And at some point, for some reason, we got into this idea that church was a place where we had to leave all of that behind. But I want to say again and loud and clear that church is a place for people in all seasons of life. Right? Church isn't a place. We've gotten this idea somewhere that church is a place where people who have it all together come. Rather than the place where we go if we don't have it all together. Church and the spiritual life following Jesus encompasses a wide range of experiences. Sometimes we have this idea that, like, well, following God means that, like, it's always happy day. It's always, like, rah, rah, go, Jesus. Like, I've got it all together. Things are going great. And that's not the reality. Right? Otherwise, this psalm wouldn't be here. He wouldn't have any reason to talk to afflicted people if there weren't afflicted people that were part of the people of God. And so I think that that is worth us noting 
and reminding ourselves that today, sitting next to us in a pew, there's probably someone who has something that's difficult. Maybe there's something that even difficult that was going on just last night or just in the car ride here this morning. And we don't have it all together. We here at Conduit, we want to be a church. We want to be a place where people can come as they are and meet Christ where they're at and find that God has something for you wherever you find yourself. And that is what this psalm is saying. He's saying, There's, I have something for you. And, and this is a place for you. And it, it, it's interesting because like we, we, we have a tendency, kind of a human nature, to run away from what we find that we need. Right? It, it, I, I'm, I'm the worst example of this. If I'm sick, the last place I'm going to go is a doctor. Right? Anybody like anybody else like know somebody else like that who's like, you know, like, oh, like he's oh no, I'm I'll be fine, you know, like I'm not gonna I don't want to go to the doctor, but like the doctor would make you feel better, Luke. Well, you know. Um or um you know, maybe like uh, maybe I'm worried or anxious about like a, a conflict or a relationship. Well, like you should probably talk to that person. No, I don't want to talk to that person. Right? We have this tendency to want to distance ourselves from the thing that we probably most likely need to do or, 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 or need. And so sometimes, right, when we're in the midst of it, when we feel like we're in the middle of a storm, we can, we're like, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about God. I don't want to talk to God. We begin to kind of put distance between ourselves and Him. And when we do that, we, we're putting ourselves um, distance between where we probably most desperately need to go. Where we're finding that, no, God is inviting us in to come and wrestle with him, to come and be honest with him, to come and say, come and pray to me like my son prayed to me in the garden when he said, you know, Lord, let this cup pass from me. When Christ was on the cross, the words that came out of his mouth were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's another psalm. It's a psalm of lament, a psalm of pain and suffering. If Jesus Christ can pray a psalm of lament, so can we. If that's part of the experience of our redemption, that's also part of the experience that is welcome here and in our lives. And David, right? King David is the one who's writing this psalm. And you might be thinking, like, what is King David, right? Like the, the greatest king of all of Israel. What has he got to say? Why, who is this person who gets to come and say to me and say, Oh, you who are afflicted, praise the Lord. Why, who, who, why does he get to tell me that, Right? But David, when he's writing this psalm at the beginning of the psalm, it has this statement. It says, of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, and who was driven away, and he left. Like, this is like one of the lowest points in David's life, right? So David, the guy who slayed, you know, with the sling and everything and killed Goliath, right? He did that. 
And then he was probably, he was like the biggest, most successful general and warrior that Israel had. He was like the crowd favorite. And he was favored among the palace and he had everything going for him. And then all of a sudden, King Saul decides that David is a threat to him. And then Saul begins to persecute him and chase him and try to kill him. And so David, who was on top of the world, has to flee. He has to leave behind his family, has to leave behind his closest friend. And he's on the run entirely by himself. He's an outlaw. He's being chased. If he were to go home, he would be killed. And he finds himself in a foreign country, but not just any foreign country or any foreign city. He finds himself in the foreign city where Goliath was born. Like, he's in the city where he, like, killed their star quarterback. And so, like, he's like, ah, they're going to kill me. Like, 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 he's like, he's not in a safe place. He went from one bad place to another. And so rather than be killed by the king, right, he decides, well, my best bet is to pretend to be insane. And so he pretends to be insane by, like, drooling and, like, letting drool, like, drip down his beard. I know it's a very beautiful image. Um, and, and he just, like, and he convinces them that, that he is insane. And so rather than kill him, they're just, like, kick him out of the city, go away. And then David goes and he finds refuge in a cave by himself. Now, this is before, like, if you're familiar with this story, you know that David has some men that come and follow him, and, he, and there's a group that gradually joins him. But this is before that. This is still when he's entirely by himself. And this is the situation where David writes this psalm. Right? It's not, David's not writing this psalm like when he's sitting on the throne and everything's going well. He's not writing this psalm. Like, he's writing this psalm in the midst of of having just pretended to be insane and having humiliated himself in order to save his own life. And out of this comes a thankfulness. And so when David says in verse 6, he says, this poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. He means it. He does. He's not just feigning humility when he says this poor man. David knows that he is a poor man with nothing to offer at this moment. But God still had his back. God was still with him, and God was still worthy of his praise. And it's out of this testimony, as David is just saying over and over again, he's saying, like, trust in the Lord. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. He's turning forward, and he says, look, I know that things look bleak, but God has not abandoned you. The Lord is encamped around you in the midst of your troubles, and he will deliver you from them. And so here, David begins to talk about the fear of the Lord. And he, in verse 9, he says, Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. And he goes on to say how the lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And he, he changes genres almost. He like stops in the psalm, and then he kind of goes into this proverb. 
right? If you've ever read the book of Proverbs, the next line would sound familiar. Come, my children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. David's all of a sudden teaching about the fear of the Lord. And that might sound strange to us right away. We're like, what? Well, one, what is the fear of the Lord? And two, why is David talking about it all of a sudden? He's talking about lions and talking about being delivered from trouble. And now all of a sudden he's talking about fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is a, is a difficult concept to try and get our minds around. A lot of times when we talk about it, we talk about it in terms of reverence or awe or respect, Right? But it's also an element of fear, right? Anything that you respect, there's also a little bit of an element of fear, of rightful recognition of what that thing that you respect or that person you respect can do. And so trying to kind of articulate this concept of the fear of the Lord, this is the definition that I came up with. The fear of the Lord is the posture of our hearts and our actions when we realize that we are create creatures created by a supreme being that is deserving of our worship and submission. It's like a, a kind of a long definition, but in, in, in a nutshell, it's this truth that God is God and that I'm not. That God created me and doesn't owe me anything necessarily. It's this recognition that I'm a creation of him and that I owe him everything. And in, in the fear of the Lord gives us perspective to recognize that, like, well, I'm, I'm one person among billions, trillions, on a small planet in a large universe orbiting a sun, and that sun hasn't even finished orbiting what it orbits once yet. That's how big the universe is. And so, and that's the God that we serve, is the one that created that. And that smallness begins to put things into perspective for a moment. Right? It's a hard truth to swallow in some regards, but it's also... A, a truth that like gives us perspective to all of a sudden my troubles are not as big as I would think that they are. And so here we find that the fear of the Lord is a posture in which we can find ourselves. And it's the place, it's the starting place and it's the solutions for so many difficult things that we find ourselves in. It's, the Bible calls the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom. And, and we have to have this recognition. Like a lot of times in the beginning of the Christian walk is a recognition that God is God and that I'm not. That I have sinned, that I, I do things that dishonor God and that I'm deserving rightfully of judgment, but that God has been gracious to me in and through that. And so there is this that puts us in a place. But how does that like, well, hold up. I'm going to stop for a second. I, I, th- this is a big concept. And, and it's a concept that I think that we need to wrestle with more, if I can say that. 
I think a lot of times if we're in a place, if we don't have a fear of the Lord, we probably are in danger of creating a God in our own image. Right? If, 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 God, if I think that God owes me something, or I think that God needs to submit to my sensibilities, that God needs to kind of act and behave in such a way that makes me feel good, or is the way that I think he ought to behave or ought to do things, is that a God that is truly God, or is that a God who submits to what I want? And a God that submits to what I want is not a God at all, but an idol that I've created. And so if we find ourselves in a place where we're, maybe we're wrestling with something, we're like, oh, like, maybe there's a decision. And you're like, I, I, I feel like, like I, what should I do? What's the right thing? Well, like, if you could consider the fear of God for a moment, and you consider that his opinion matters, does that create any clarity over how you should be living your life? or what the right thing to do in any given situation is. Because all of a sudden, now I'm not the God of my life. God is the God of my life. And now what has been clearly said in the Bible isn't just nice sayings or isn't just, you know, there for like speculation or perhaps like thinking about we're considering, but it's there for following. It's there for living. And so when we rightly recognize the bigness of God and rightly recognize our smallness and our rightful worship that we owe him, that begins to straighten a lot of things out inside of our hearts and inside of our lives that maybe we've let get overly complicated because we've not wanted to submit to God. But what does that have to say to the person who's suffering? What does that have to say to the person who is, who is experiencing difficult, who would, say, who, who would say, I am one of the afflicted that David is talking to? And this is, I believe that this is a, a, a true comfort. I found it to be a comfort in my life. And the comfort is this, is that when we hold the fear of the Lord in tension with the Lord's goodness, we find the peace to walk through the unknown. When I hold in one hand that God is God and in control, and he's bigger than I could ever understand, and that he's also good. And if I hold those two things together, all of a sudden, I can begin to perhaps grab onto those in faith and say, I know I don't understand what's going on right now. I don't have an answer to why I'm suffering, to why I'm going through a difficult time. But I know that God's good. And I know that God is with me. And I know that God's in control. And all of a sudden it becomes just a little bit easier to take the next step, to face the next day. And that takes faith, 
right? That's not an easy place to find ourselves. And in its, in, in its in sense, it's the summary of the entire book of Job. Because when suffering happens, right, the, when something bad happens, when you are walking uh, through your house late at night and you step on something like a Lego, or you like kick, kick the coffee table, right, you're, you're like, you know, and you maybe say something you shouldn't, and then you immediately want to know what it was you stepped on, right? You want to immediately want to know what you kicked. Why? So you don't step on it again, right? Like, that's the worst thing. It's like, if you, don't man- if you don't get the Lego the first time, like, if you come back through and you step on it again, or, like, you keep kicking the same coffee table every time, like, you want to figure out why you're hurting yourself so that you can stop doing it. And so the same thing happens any time a big hurt or pain comes into our life. We immediately want to know why. Right? We want to make sense of our pain. We want to say, I, okay, this is why that happened. And sometimes there's an easy answer to that question, but a lot of times there isn't. A lot of, for, I would say for mostly for the biggest hurts in our lives, there will not be an answer to that question of why did that thing happen to me? And in the book of Job, right, if you're not familiar with it, is this man, he was the quintessential good guy. He was the best guy. He followed the Lord. He did everything right. And then he lost everything inside of a day. His family, his wealth, his home, his health, everything. And the rest of the book is an exploration as him and a couple other people are exploring the question of, well, why did this happen to you, Job? Did it happen to you because you did a bad thing? Did it happen to you because your family did a bad thing? Did it happen to you because, like, you know, you, you, you just didn't worship God enough? Did it happen to you because, you know, God isn't good? It's exploring these questions. And Job eventually gets to this place where he says, he says, says, God, like you need to owe me this answer as to why I'm experiencing this pain and suffering. And then God comes in a giant storm and says, Job, like, I, I'm the God of the universe. I don't owe you anything. And, and Job experiences this visceral moment of the fear of the Lord. And he recognizes, he's like, I don't. And in fact, like, he has this realization that God is good and that God is great. And that those two things, that God is deserving of his fear and his obedience, but also that God is present and loving and good, and that that is where he needs to live in faith. And that at some point, maybe we'll get that answer to the, to the question, why? But the thing is, is that like if we're holding on, if we're looking for that question, why, you won't find a satisfactory answer. But you will find here, and you find with other people, and you find with Christ and faith, a way forward, a way to 
deal with where you find yourself. You can't change what has happened. You can't fix the problems, but you can move forward. You can find healing. You can find redemption. You can find deliverance. And that's what this rest of the psalm points towards. I want to read the rest of this here again. <clears throat> Starting in verse, um, verse 17. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. That last verse right there in verse 19, I would say is the theme of this entire psalm. It summarizes it. That the righteous person, the person who fears the Lord and serves the Lord, may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. It's holding these things in tension. Saying, the righteous person, the person who fears the Lord, will still endure trouble. Will still have hard things happen to them. Their life will not go perfectly to plan. But the Lord will deliver them from them all. The Lord will be present with them through all of them. The Lord will encamp around them. The Lord is good through all of it. The rest of the psalm looks forward in this future perspective. It says in verse 20, he protects all of his bones. And notice it says, it's talking about the future. It says, not one of them will be broken. In the end, evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants, and no one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. It's pointing forward and saying, look, you know what the end will be. The end result will be deliverance. There are, I love stories, right? I love movies, I love film, I love books, like everything. And there are two kind of very common types of stories, right? Particularly in movies. There are stories where we don't know what the ending will be. It's kind of going to be a bit of a surprise. And then there's a story where we know what the ending will be, right? So the first one where you don't know how it's going to all wrap up is like your mystery thriller, right? It's like your whodunit. Like, oh, like, I don't know, like, what's going to happen? Like, are they going to get together? Are they going to stay together? Like, what's going to happen? You know, like all the twists and turns, and you're like, whoa, I never knew that was going to how that movie was going to end, right? Those are fun movies to watch. But actually, those are probably the, the least amount of movies that we watch. The, the movie we watch the most of is the movie where we actually know how it's going to end, right? This is your James Bond film. You know that James Bond is going to save the day. You don't know how, but you know he will, right? This is Indiana Jones. You know that Indiana Jones will get really close to getting the treasure, but then he won't get it, but he will get the girl, like, and then he'll like ride off into the sunset. That's the end of every Indiana Jones movie. If they do another one, that'll be the end of the next one too. Like, 
We know that like in every Marvel movie, there's going to be like this big epic battle scene and the good guys win, the bad guys lose, right? Like we watch these movies where we know what the end will be. And the only question that's really in our mind is how do we get from what happens in the middle, right? How do we get from point A to point B? We know point B is where we're going to land. We just don't know what's going to happen in the middle, and the question is, is what kind of life are we living? Are we living, are we, our stories, our own selves, in the middle of a story where we have no idea what the end will be? Or do we actually know what the end will be? And it's just living in faith in the middle, not entirely sure how it's going to get there. And I think that's, that's the type of life we're living. That's, that's the place we find ourselves in. Because... Because Christ has already determined the end, right? I think of John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his world, send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, Right? That resonates with the end of that passage, right? Saying when it says in verse 22, it says, The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Right? Christ upended the story of the world in the cross. Because because we have a God who entered into our troubles, right? A God who now eternally has holes in his hands, right? Who eternally knows what it's like to endure suffering and to be counted among the afflicted. And he experienced that. And he experienced death because there's nothing worse Right? Like in all of the possibilities of all things that could happen in the universe, there isn't anything worse than the death of God. And that already happened. And God, in that sacrifice, took death and put it to death. And he turned it upside down when he rose from the grave. That's what we just celebrated in Easter. That is the truth of the gospel. And that is the hope that we have in Christ. For anyone who is in Christ, there is no longer any condemnation. Right? When we believe in Christ, we are wrapped up into him. Into the, in, we become a child of God. We become a son. We become a daughter of God. And in that, we participate this promise of a new life knowing that there is an eternal life, that there is redemption, that at the end it will make sense that even though now it doesn't, even though right now we could say that we could say with David, this poor man, but we know that because we've been bought with the blood of Christ, we will not be abandoned, that we will be delivered, whether soon or later, that Christ will be with us. And that truth gives us the ability 
that we can live now in faith because we know the end. And it gives us the ability to walk forward and to live in faith. It allows us to say with David, I will praise the Lord. There will be praise on my lips, even amidst my pain, even though I feel like I'm alone in a cave, even though I feel like I'm at my lowest point. And the thing that can be an encouragement to all of us is that we're not alone, right? If this is resonating with you, like, trust me, it's resonating with a bunch of us in his room. We're not alone in the difficulties that we face. And Christ is present with us in that. And so my hope for you is that this psalm can help point you forward. That maybe you're like, maybe I'm not all the way there with David yet. Maybe I'm not ready to stand up and tell everyone else to praise the Lord with me. But maybe I can get there. Maybe I can have some faith in that God is good and that he's present with me. Maybe I can face the rest of today. Maybe I can face tomorrow. And that's my hope. That's my prayer. If you would, please join with me in some prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you as people who don't have it all together all of the time. And Lord, we come to you as people who are in need of you daily. Who require strength. Who require your presence to face what is in front of us. Lord, I pray that you would teach us the fear of the Lord. That we would understand just how big you are and how small we are. That that would be a comfort to us. God, that you would help us to have perspective. Lord, that you would send your spirit that we might have confidence and trust and know and experience your goodness. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to to seek and to cry out to you. To not just suffer in silence, but to cry out to you. And Lord, that in crying out to you, we would taste and see that you are still good. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who came here this morning feeling afflicted by something. Lord, I ask that you would minister to them in a way that my words anything I could ever say could not do. Lord, I ask that your spirit would be pressing himself upon their heart. Lord, you are the great physician. You came not for the healthy, but for the sick. Lord, you came for us who needed you. Lord, I pray that you would be there right now for those who need you. Lord, I ask that you would fill us as your body with your spirit, that we might be your hands and your feet, that we might speak your words, that we might practice your love for one another. Jesus, might all of this 
speak your name and be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.